Today, I'm joined with, again, Tom Nugent. Tom, it's so good to hear from you again. Thank you, Shane and Gemma, for the terrific work you've been doing to keep this important story alive and keep so many people listening so that we can continue to do our best to report the facts and only the facts as best we know them. Well, I'm so glad you said that because a lot of people who listened to our two-parter that we already released with our conversation with you, of course, people loved hearing you. They loved how in-depth you go into each of the questions. And so, of course, more people had more questions, and even some people wanted to ask those questions themselves. So I'll go ahead and jump in, and I'm going to play a recording of two of those questions. Tom, I'm just wondering The answer I have is, as was reported in the Baltimore Sun and other newspapers a couple of years ago, the DNA testing of the cigarette butt indicated that Father Maskell, key figure in all of this that was not identified as having left his DNA on those cigarette butts that were located in the area of the body of the dead nun, Sister Kathy. And so at that point, we knew very little but only that whatever took place when she was killed, that material, namely those cigarette butts, did not carry his particular DNA signature. And so that line of inquiry, was he involved directly on the scene at that time in her death, appears to indicate, and it was reported this way, that he was not linked at the crime scene to her death. That shows us an important fact, and we have to respect it, but it really doesn't speak to the fundamental question that all of the different investigations, including my own, of this have looked at, which is, did he or did he not arrange for other people to take care of this problem and eliminate Sister Kathy? without him having to be there. No one has really ever suggested that he struck the killing blow. And indeed, there is no evidence to suggest that. And indeed, since WJZ television in Baltimore, now a year and a half ago, reported that, mind you, not as a question or speculation, but as fact that both police and priests were involved in raping and otherwise abusing these girls at the Keough High School. And so that, in my judgment, the fact that his DNA wasn't on cigarette butts located near her body is essentially unimportant. And so that's the best I can tell you about that particular situation. Yeah, and Tom, I also will add, uh, one of the lines that she asks is about if they compared the cigarette butt a genealogy database for DNA. And I don't believe that was ever shared publicly. I honestly couldn't answer that question either. And I doubt you would be able to as well. But what they did release publicly is that the DNA from the cigarette butt did not match Father Mask, which, as you pointed out, I feel like at no point in time did anyone ever feel like 
anyone would find DNA of Father Maskell's death crime scene. Is that accurate, Tom? It certainly is, Jane. It's totally accurate. In my view, as an investigative reporter, it's very clear from many different sources that are indisputable that the police and the FBI have been covering up this particular crime, the murder of the nun, since day one. As an example of this, I give you evidence number one, which is that a Freedom of Information Act was delivered now, I think, probably five years ago to the FBI. And they then responded by saying, actually, although we had said before that we had nothing on the case, a fact which I reported extensively in some of my stories, in fact, we do have 6,000 pages of investigative materials that we will release to you shortly under the Freedom of Information Act. And to this day, they have never released it. They've also reinvestigated the case, I think now four times, including interviews with some of the key figures who were involved back in the day. And they have never released any of that, even though I have in my possession their statement that your freedom of information request is in order. We are honor-bound to release it. We have a few tasks to achieve. We have to redact names, places, dates, in order to avoid somehow involving individuals that we don't have the authority to involve. But we will soon make it available to you. They have never done that. And they have been allowed to get away with confirming that the request under the Freedom of Information Act was appropriate and due process and that they would respond and they have not responded in any way. So I ask, why do they keep reinvestigating the murder of a 26-year-old nun 50 years ago? Why do they keep going back? Only two or three years ago, they went back and they again interviewed some of the key witnesses involved in all of this, extensively. They looked again at the wedding gift that the nun had bought at the shopping center right before she was killed. They took that item, a necklace, and carried it away with them and studied it, and they re-interviewed everyone. My question, I think you can see the obvious potential answer, why do they care enough about the Sister Kathy problem to have compiled 6,000 pages, mostly on the second victim, who, I think it was five days after the nun's death, was also killed and killed at Fort Meade, where Father Maskell was the chaplain back in the day. They have put together an enormous, I never heard anything like it, 6,000 pages, and then they have re-interviewed witnesses three times, I guess it is, and once again, we are told nothing. This tells me, as an investigative reporter, that they have some kind of deep interest in what all of this really is. And when they looked over their 6,000 pages, they've had five years to redact whatever they wanted. They came to the conclusion that this material should not be shown to the public. I have no doubt myself, speaking personally, that they are engaged with the Baltimore County Police 
and other law enforcement agencies in a long-term cover-up of the entire incident. I don't see any other reasonable conclusion to come to here. Therefore, I ask myself as a journalist, why do they care? This is a, a homicide of a 26-year-old kid, basically, in the Baltimore area, and it's 50 years old. Why not release everything and say, take a look, folks, decide for yourselves what's here? There is some reason, and I think I know what that reason is, that they were, they felt compelled to keep everything secret, and it is secret tonight as I speak to you. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I'm sure you might be aware of this, but we learned when we spoke last with Joyce's family, the FBI actually destroyed all of the physical evidence in Joyce's case during the mid-90s. This is so frustrating to me just to think that the FBI would destroy physical evidence that could have been tested in the 90s with DNA testing. So before they even attempt to test it for DNA, they destroyed it all. Which also, if you think about this, the timing is very weird. Again, because we know in the mid-90s is when the Doe Row trial came up. And during that period of time is when they started re-examining Joyce and Kathy's case. So why then? Does the FBI choose to destroy all of the physical evidence in the case? And as you brought up, they recently denied the request for the Freedom of Information Act. And I'm not sure if you know about this, but after we had, after Gemma and I met with the Maleckis in Baltimore, they shared with us how frustrating they still were 
because they felt like the FBI was just waiting for all of them to die so that they would stop asking questions about Joyce's case. So what Gemma and I ended up doing was we actually contacted every senator and lawmaker in Maryland. We did that through email and letters, and we also asked our listeners and followers to do the same. And eventually that led to Abby being able to work with certain people to try to get the FBI to prioritize that, because as you mentioned, it had been five years already, and it still had not been assigned an analyst. And then, of course, as you also mentioned, they returned it and said, nope, sorry, we can't give you anything. I hear you, Shane. And it's actually, in my opinion, worse than that. When I wrote my story in that was published in 2005 about all of this, this is a 6,000 word monster investigative piece that went back and looked at every detail as closely as possible. At that time, FBI Special Agent Barry Maddock was managing the public affairs section of the FBI from their central offices in Woodlawn, Maryland. And when I asked him about Malecki in particular, he told me, and I ran it in my story, and no one has ever contradicted it from the FBI or anywhere else. No one has challenged my report that Agent Maddox told me, quote, actually, Tom, we didn't investigate the killing of Joyce Malecki, even though it took place on a federal reservation, namely Fort Meade. What we did was, because we were busy with other things, we went ahead and returned the entire case to the Anne Arundel County Police Department and their homicide division. And we left everything with them. Of course, as you can imagine, I quickly called them and they said, wait a minute, we don't understand this. We never did a single thing to investigate Joyce Malecki's death, even though reportedly she was abducted from a shopping center in Anne Arundel County. Apparently, the police in Anne Arundel County told me they've made a mistake or forgotten or lost the file, but their assertion that we handled Malecki's death her body found in a stream as on the military base is inaccurate. We never did a single moment of work on that. They did all of the work at the FBI. So now we find out years later that they have indeed 6,000 pages of work they did. Uh, when I asked FBI agent Maddox, he said, Tom, I'm embarrassed. I've been through all our files and looked in our basement and our old records. We don't have a thing on Joyce Malecki. I'm sorry. We cannot help you. I can't explain it, he said. But apparently, we have nothing. And so I'm left with this problem. Why did they tell me, the reporter, oh, we don't have anything. Don't worry about it. Go talk to the Anne Arundel County cops. They handled it all. And then they come back later and admit Publicly, they have 6,000 pages of investigation into the Malecki killing. Both things cannot be true at the same time. And I have numerous other examples uh, of things that were told to me by the FBI that are absolutely false 
and have led me to the only reasonable conclusion that I can get, especially when you remember that they've been investigating this over and over again in the last five years. We are not talking about them saying old history, who cares, it's 50 years ago. They have gone to witnesses and asked them to uh, demand it, in fact, give us the necklace the nun bought that night before she was killed. We want to look at it, turn it over to our physical lab guys and so on. And they have asked witnesses, go ahead and remember for us what took place on the night of her abduction. Why do they care, 50 years later nearly, about these events if they're only a minor blip on the radar? You know, an ordinary, I'm an old-time police reporter. The ordinary, simplistic step here is you go investigate. It's 50 years later. Many of the principals, perhaps most of them, are dead. Why do you care? At one point, I was told, we have to take care of 9-11. We're dealing in terrorism. We're dealing with protecting America from horrible monsters who want to come here like 9-11 and blow up buildings. Do you think we have time to be worrying about a 50-year-old murder of a 26-year-old nun? Thank you very much and good day. Then why are they reinvestigating it several times within the last few years? That tells me something. And what it tells me is there were elements high up in the Baltimore, in the Maryland, and even in the Washington, D.C. world of politics and criminal investigation that for whom it was extremely important to make sure that the real story of what all of this was never got out. I don't think a reasonable person can conclude otherwise, given the series of steps I've just described to you. And one last point, Jane, if I got that wrong, and somehow lost my grip and reported it incorrectly, where have they been? No one has ever said your story is inaccurate. No one has challenged this information about Special Agent Barry Maddox and their claim that they never investigated it, followed by their admission that they did investigate it, and they have 6,000 pages of stuff, but and they've agreed to turn it over per the Freedom of Information Act, and yet they have never done it to this hour. That's a clear violation, I'm sure, not, not, maybe not just of federal procedures, but even of the law. When that request was filed, they were told, the people who filed the Freedom of Information request were told, you are entitled to this material, your request is in order, we will bring it to you as fast as possible once we do a few last redaction chores, and they never did. Put all of that together. I'll quote Hamlet, you'll permit me. I can't change a tire, but I've got one Shakespeare quote for you, which is, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. I hope that is helpful as an answer to your question. Yeah, and Tom, I want to add two things to that. One, I had asked a retired FBI agent, I explained the situation that we learned that the FBI destroyed the physical evidence for Joyce's unsolved murder case. And it was, of course, prior to them even testing it for DNA when testing was available. Then when we got the denial back from the FOIA request, I brought that to their attention as well. And they told me, first off, he has never heard of the FBI destroying physical evidence in an unsolved murder case. 
especially at a time when they could have tested it for DNA. He felt, from his own opinion and his knowledge with working with the FBI, it seems like the reason that they could be denying the request is because of a liability issue. For example, if they were to release documents to us and the family, and there was anything in there that could expose them as they didn't fully work the case or they messed up somewhere or they did something they shouldn't have, aka destroy physical evidence, then the family could have the ability to sue the FBI for mishandling the case. So that was just, uh, you can, listeners can take that as they will. I also wanted to add that you mentioned the necklace. Whenever we mention the necklace in the podcast, it normally we start getting the same questions and questions again. So I want to just make sure that I answer that really quickly so I don't get a bunch of emails about this necklace. We've been told by the detectives that the necklace, they're not able to confirm that Kathy bought the necklace as an engagement gift. There was no receipt. We know that the detectives had inquired with all the shops in the area that she had been shopping at, and no one could confirm that she had purchased the necklace. And it seems that she was inquiring on starting a a registry so people could purchase stuff for her sister's wedding. But I don't want to stay on this topic too long because I do have lots of other questions that I'd love to pick your mind for, Tom. The detectives have told Gemma and myself that the necklace has been eliminated as possibly evidence in Sister Kathy's case. They further explained that Edgar seemed to have been a petty thief and could have stolen it from anyone. So I'll go ahead and start the message for the next question. Hi, guys. Aaron Myers from Baltimore. Let's have a little poll. Um, with Tom Nugent, I would like to hear more about the connection with any political scandal back in the late 60s that Tom Nugent knows, if he's allowed to talk about it. I think it has a really big import about how this was connected with the honeypot at the school Schaefer's 
inside team of crooks, they would create phony dummy corporations. They would buy old condemned properties that the city had owned under fake assumed identity firms. They would insure them for a couple of million dollars. Then they would secretly burn the building themselves and collect huge payoffs from the insurance. The money, I was even told by absolutely reliable witnesses, including people who had done this for them, the money was sent to numbered Swiss accounts, Switzerland. This went on, and it became such a joke that at the big police bar, there was a uh, central police, Baltimore Police Department lounge where state police, city police, and FBI gathered regularly. And they would sit around and drink a few beers after their shift. This is a common thing we know about in that world. And the name of the mayor of that day, William Donald Schaefer, often described as Willie Don Schaefer at that time, the knowledge of this criminal activity that had been going on for years was so widespread and pervasive that the police, I'm talking state police and FBI and local cops, over there sitting at, they're having a beer at the bar, their nickname for the mayor was, quote, Willie the Torch. They jokingly referred frequently to Willie the Torch as the mayor of Baltimore and later soon to be the two-term governor. That's how common and widespread all of this knowledge was among law enforcement officers back in the day. When I tried to do some investigative work and begin to bring some of this forward and to ask how the manipulation of these financial records and so on at the aquarium and at Harbor Place, how that actually took place and whether or not these arson things were occurring, as I've just described to you, I was told by the managing editor, quote, sorry, Tom, we're not going there. Let it go. I had at that time developed a source, an assistant accountant, uh, financial officer in the city government of Baltimore who had agreed to, if I asked for it, to meet with the managing editor and even the publisher of the Sun. I conveyed that to the managing editor and the brass at the paper. And they said, no, Tom, that is highly irregular. We're not interested in meeting ourselves. This is unheard of in journalism. Usually the reporter goes and writes the story and the editor looks at it and if it seems reasonable and we have all of the allegedlies and reportedlies, all the adverbs are in place to show that you are not intentionally accusing someone of a crime, then they run the story. If the evidence in your story is adequate and a reasonable person would say, this is worthy of examination. When they refused to look at it at all, I resigned after five years on the job, and without one of these fancy contemporary buyouts where reporters get fifty or $80,000 for giving up their job, I went out the door without a penny on principle and said, I am not going to be part of this entire corrupt system that you guys have put together, and you are hiding it from the public. And the consequences are not just important, they're heartbreaking. In the last few decades in Baltimore, as you're saying, I would say right now that on average, probably one person every night is killed, often in the ghetto, 
or the surrounding areas where the equally corrupt continuing drug trade continues and the battle over turf continues and the same nightmare that we knew back then is right in place and hard at work today. People are being killed almost every night in Baltimore as a consequence of these, this constellation of criminal activities that went on and every prosecutor that they ever brought it to was too afraid politically, too afraid to take it on. And they were told again and again, I have talked to some idealistic FBI agents who said, we've brought this to the state's attorney and to the federal prosecutor in, in Baltimore again and again. And we're always told, too bad, you've got some pretty important, believable stuff, but the time isn't right and we cannot proceed with a grand jury or with indictment. The city was corrupt to its teeth. I have talked to inmates who burned the building. They told me how they put the white petroleum jelly under the windows and made sure the ventilation was the right way because the real fear that you have in arson, if you don't burn it fully and you leave behind clues, you could get into real trouble. They, the mayor's administration in that day gave classes to the guys that they took on to do this work on how to burn the buildings properly. And I have spent many hours sitting with inmates from the Maryland Penitentiary who explained how they were taught and coached to do all of this work. There is no doubt whatsoever in my mind that corrupt political machine was fully at work behind all of this. And the priests at Keogh, in my opinion, and I want to underline that word, opinion, so I don't get a bunch of threats and calls, we're going to sue you for defamation. These are allegations. They are opinions. No jury has ever said that anyone is guilty of anything. And in our system of law, I fully agree. This is a system of due process and protecting the rights of the innocent. I am not accusing anyone. I'm telling you what my reporting has shown me. And I'm saying these are allegations. But I am also saying here loud and clear, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that it was in that corrupt atmosphere that these girls at Keogh and from other schools were being pimped out to police and to politicians and also to very high-ranking politicians. And that it was that, it was that factor, along with the immense, power of the Catholic Church back in the day, my judgment is that when the lawsuit came forward and it was suddenly clear, this was a $40 million lawsuit in 1995, and it said there's no doubt that the priests were abusing and raping these girls, feeding them to the police, and feeding them to high-ranking politicians all the way up into state and federal level. They were putting girls into holiday inn rooms on Route 40 in Baltimore, and some of the police and politicians were going over and taking advantage of that. And that is the real reason, in my opinion, underlining opinion, why the FBI keeps checking on it over and over again. You have to remember about this, I think, Shane. What really goes on in Washington is not this wonderful, dramatic uh, battle against terrorists and our enemies overseas, 
what goes on is an intra battle among agencies like the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, to see who can get the biggest budget and wield the most influence. The whole damn system is corrupt from the top to the bottom. Their real interest, as we know from the career of J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, there's no longer any reasonable doubt that he ran a kingdom he was often described as more powerful than the president of the United States. He had secret files on hundreds of politicians, and if anybody stopped him or tried to block any of Hoover's moves in Washington, they would be threatened. We've got all of the dirt on you. Better watch out. You'll find your career is destroyed in a heartbeat. The most revealing thing I ever heard about our former Mayor Schaefer was from one of his underlings who in a weak moment said, you got to be careful with Schaefer. He's, the guy is so powerful, quote, and I quote, he can pick up the phone and destroy you at any moment if he wants to. Okay, so it's against all of that backdrop that I find perfectly credible as a reporter, believable kinds of logic that tell us the fix was on from the beginning. And when the lawsuit came and the church was suddenly looking at a potential $40 million judgment against them, and at the exposure of these cops and politicians for how they had been participating in all of this, they shut it down and they had good reason to. Believe me, I understand fully. The fact is, however, that the knowledge we have now today makes it clear and I think very reasonable to believe that this was never solved and Joyce Malecki's unfortunate murder was never solved because the grip of these dark forces on our whole way of life has never been broken. And we need to break it. We need to understand what we're up against. The Roman Catholic Church, Though I will now underline this, please. There are thousands of wonderful Catholic priests and nuns at work here and in other countries around the world through lives of selfless devotion. I myself attended Catholic schools throughout my boyhood high school Catholic school, DeMatha, in Hyattsville, Maryland, and I gained immensely myself from what they taught me. They helped me make a living. I am not on an anti Catholic. I am not an enemy of the church. I highly respect and appreciate the wonderful things they have done and continue to do. But by God, I do not understand anyone who says they are above the law or should not be subject to the law. And it is in that respect that I say we need to break their hold. I'm proud to tell you that, as you probably know, 15 different attorneys general in the United States are now subpoenaing personnel records, all kinds of factual content and information from Catholic parishes all over this country. We're talking about Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Michigan, and several other states. And in some of those states, as priests have been put in jail behind steel bars for crimes that were committed decades ago, and finally, they have begun to break that hold and hold those supposedly holy men responsible for what went on. We are up against very powerful forces that define our time. And so the little bit of work that you 
and I and Gemma and some of the others have been able to do is a way of saying no to that and a way of recognizing that a long struggle lies ahead before that hold is broken. That's my best estimate from the heart, as honestly as I can make it, of what is really occurring here. Again, I hope I have been responsive and and responsible in answering your question. Yeah, Tom, you made a lot of really good points. And I definitely agree with you that I do believe that corruption played a major role in not only Kathy's case, but the abuse that goes along with it. And we did segue into my next question. Before I get into that, I did want to add, you mentioned in 1995, the lawsuit was for $40 million. So that definitely gives us an idea on how much the Catholic Church wanted to knock that lawsuit down. But just to give those listeners who are listening an idea of how much $40 million was in 1995, with inflation in 2019, that's $68 million. So the well, next- yes, that's certainly a big number and reason enough to believe that they would have stopped at nothing in order to shut all of this down. And they essentially, at that time, succeeded in that. And they sank to unspeakable depth, in my opinion. Again, I underline opinion. They tormented and set private detectives to work to see if they could find out that Gene Weiner, as you the whistleblower who said that he had been shown the body of the dead nun, to show that she was sexually promiscuous, mentally unstable, a habitual liar, and that her work, her testimony could not be believed. These, this is the Catholic Church that I grew up with. Instead of comforting this daughter of the church, instead of taking her to heart and trying to help her, they put detectives on her to prove that she was promiscuous and drug-taking and so on, I can find nothing in my 45 years as a reporter more despicable than that. And so I hope, again, I've spoken to your point. Yeah, you definitely did. And I also will add that we also know that they also came out and approached Charles and offered him a boat to make sure he didn't talk <laughs> so that he wouldn't back up, you know, what exactly Gene was saying. So that's, that's let me, uh, yes, let me add. Of course, I interviewed Charles Franz in great detail. He told me about the three years that Father Maskell had stalked him and about how he had begged his local Catholic pastor to help him somehow through this and had been told years later. I'm sorry, Charles, I apologize. They told me at Archdiocesan headquarters that if I had intervened and tried to protect you, though you were a 14-year-old boy, that I would lose my pension, he said. I reported this, and it's available now on Inside Baltimore. And if I lost my pension, he told the adult Charles years later, I had no other skills and no other way to make money. I would have been destitute. I I beg you to forgive me. I apologize from the heart, but I was a coward, and I said nothing. What more do we need than to know from his testimony that 
if the priest who left him to be victimized was more worried about his pension than about taking care of one of his flock, the word I would underline, in my opinion, is despicable. But I will add one more thing. It's part of a whole process that we now are beginning to learn more about. Catholic children all too often are terrified at six, seven, eight years old during catechism class, and I lived this myself. I went through it. They are terrified into believing that they will go to hell and be tortured for eternity by demons with fiery torches who will burn them and all the rest unless they knuckle under and do what the local priest tells them so that they can be safe from hell. If they don't have the strength or the courage or the ability to overcome that early training, then they belong to the church forever. And the deal is this. You keep showing up every Sunday and putting the agreed-upon amount in the collection basket, and you'll be fine. Jesus will save you, and you won't be tortured for eternity. And so the ones who can't handle that load, which starts when they're seven years old, and who knuckle under to it, are their prisoners forever. They are an empire. The Catholic Church is the wealthiest single business entity on the planet by a mile. If you count everything they have from the Sistine Chapel paintings of Michelangelo on the ceiling of the chapel, to their vast, incredible real estate holding, to the business that they have engaged in from the beginning, there's no longer any doubt that at the height of the Vietnam War, they made good money from Dow Chemical stocks they owned at the Vatican. They made napalm and made money off it and burned villagers and sometimes U.S. troops. And so we know what we're up against. I've often heard it said jokingly, I don't find this terribly funny, but I've heard it said jokingly that in spite of the wonderful people who also take part in Catholic priesthood and the nuns and all the rest, and I want to honor them, nonetheless, as a business entity, they are fundamentally indistinguishable from the mafia. I think it's an almost comical coincidence that both of those organizations originate in the same place. Do you get my meaning? <laughs>